0: Welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar.
1: The podcast where we mix a sometimes weird, but always delicious cocktail of theology, philosophy, and spirituality.
0: Well, welcome to another episode of A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We're excited you're here with us, excited to share this time with you, whether you're in the car, cutting your grass, trying to tune out your kids, whatever you're doing, we're excited to spend this next hour together with you. Kyle, how are you? I'm doing okay, Randy. Yeah. Elliot, how are you doing, sir? All right. Well, let's get right to it. What are we drinking tonight, Kyle?
1: So I have pulled out for you something a little bit more special. This is the Maker's Mark Cask Strength Bourbon. Uh, Cask cask Strength. strength, I'm scared. Yeah, that that means it packs a punch. Uh, So this was actually a birthday gift from my lovely wife. Uh, and wow. it is it is pretty wonderful. It's a weeded bourbon, which means the secondary grain after corn is wheat, which tends to make a bourbon sweeter, which is what I like. Interesting. All right,
0: it does have a big nose right off the it bat.
1: Does this this one will benefit from I, a little bit of water, uh, perhaps after sipping for the first time, so you can get the full
0: full effect. I get in the nose. I get extra like hay smell. Maybe that's from the wheat.
1: Yeah, I I won't pretend that my nose is that refined. (laughs) All I know is that it burns, and it's like
2: delicious caramel candy. It's nice and strong, but the sweet balances it out. Uh, Woo, that burn's going down. Yeah.
0: That's good, though, yeah. It does finish caramelly.
1: This is about 111 proof, I believe. Okay. Something like that. Each barrel's a little different. Now, when
0: they say cask strength, for those of you who don't know your whiskeys, it comes out of the barrel and usually the distiller will cut the the whiskey to the level that they think is perfect, to the level where they think it's not too hot. You can taste all the notes where everything shines. And this is not, this is uncut is what they would call it. Yeah, which means you can Very cut tasty, it yourself. Very tasty, I would definitely.
1: By adding however much water you want. So typically they're cut to around 40-ish percent. Uh, so this would be closer to 60
2: you know how if you have like normal butter, but then you get butter that's fresh from the dairy? like That difference between normal butter and extraordinary butter is present in here.
0: It's good. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to have to cut this, though, because I'll yeah. be burping nonstop through no our sh- whole interview. No
1: shame. This one was made to be cut.
0: This is fun. I'd, I'd recommend this. I like makers anyways, but this is just a fun variation. On For me, this mark. is
1: a, a big step up from their common expression. Nothing against standard makers, uh, but cast strength is where it's at
0: awesome well makers mark cask strength pastor and a philosopher walk into a bar approved
1: Definitely. Definitely. well let's get rolling towards our interview randy has a personal connection with this person so randy why don't you why don't you tee up who we're talking to
0: yes this week is my geek <laughs> my smart person i'm excited to welcome dr jim vining jim good to see you good to have you here
3: Great to be here. Thank you.
0: Jim is a professor at, is a Governor State University yep. in Illinois, a rhetoric professor, PhD. And um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Jim?
3: Well, I am a, a former Western New York country boy, a former pastor. Uh, moved around all over the country, in my young adult years, but I've been in Milwaukee for 13 years now. I am married. Been married for eighteen years. I have two teenage kids, one dog, um, and like I said, I'm a an assistant professor in Illinois. But don't worry, I, I still wear a brewer's hat when I go to Illinois just to represent.
0: <laughs> you wouldn't be on this podcast if you didn't. <laughs> Jim, can you tell us about what your your field of expertise and uh, your what you teach and what you've researched?
3: Sure. Uh, so I um, I teach communication studies, and I approach it from a rhetorical angle. Uh, So I'm a rhetorician. Now, you know, first thing um, that comes to mind for most people when you say rhetoric is uh, something negative, like all those politicians and their rhetoric. So rhetoric is, it's kind of like a haircut. Um, You know, it could be good or it could be bad. (laughs) So I teach rhetoric, how texts are created uh, what makes a text persuasive? That's how I would define it. My definition of rhetoric would be would be really big. Some people just define it as something uh, like a, a speech a politician gives. I would say that is a rhetorical text. But basically, my definition is big enough that anything a human being creates communicates something. It does something. So we analyze those because we believe uh, those messages make a difference. And then uh, my my particular area of study. Uh, well, it's kind of what, what people say not to talk about at parties. So uh, I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing you don't talk about religion or politics when you go to a party. Incidentally, <laughs> I don't get invited to a lot of parties, but um, there is no lack of um, materials to research. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll invite you to some parties.
2: <laughs> yes,
0: yes. <laughs> what a What a fascinating time to get into rhetoric and teach rhetoric and research it. When did you when did you start your studies? When did you start your PhD course?
3: It started 2012, around there. So uh, before that, I was doing pastoral ministry for 14 years and had a lot of great experiences, but also uh, presented to me with uh, with some real questions questions of what makes what makes a speech or a sermon persuasive. I mean, I'm, I'm enough of a Christian mystic to believe in the role of the Holy Spirit and uh, that you know it's more than just uh, a preacher and a and a congregation. I believe that God plays a role in the mix, but uh, but wondering what else. So uh, and maybe it was I was just a really bad preacher. I don't know, but um, you know. So I'd, I'd give sermons on uh, like the uh, the minor prophets, and they would have a real clear message from the text. Uh, things like, hey, care for the poor, don't oppress people, and in in the uh, the evangelical tradition, expository preaching was a big thing. And so I'd clearly teach from the text or, or, you know, I try to show those connections from the text. And I was just kind of shocked that if I got into something that perhaps aligned with a particular political party that uh, people in the congregation weren't connected with, uh, they get furious and I'd get angry emails. And uh, it's like, well, we say we honor this text. This is what the text says. What's happening here. What's the dynamic that we say, yes, this is the authoritative text, but don't tell me that?
1: Fascinating. Well, we've got quite a few questions for you. Before we dive into them, we like to ask our guests Is there anything you're drinking that you want to tell us about?
3: Oh, there is. I mentioned that I'm from, uh, so I love Milwaukee, been here 13 years, Uh, enjoy um, Milwaukee beers, particularly venture uh, near my neighborhood. But uh I'm I'm a western New York boy at heart and uh, in what in my hometown we have a little place called Southern Tier Brewing Company and I am currently drinking their double milk stout which uh, I treat myself to on a special occasion and talking to you guys is a special occasion so <laughs> you that. that
1: nice cheers. Jim, cheers cheers so Jim what was it would you say that led you being a pastor to decide that you want to become a rhetorician. I'm guessing that was a momentous decision. How did that come about?
3: <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, it's not the normal path for rhetoricians. Um, so I wanted to uh, I wanted to be a pastor from about the time I was 17. Uh, so I went to college, studied for that. Also did some, some divinity school for that. Um, after college, I was in pastoral ministry for about 14 years uh, in seven different places. So if you do the math, that tells you a little something about how things mm-hmm. went. So, you know, most of those situations, there were changes in senior level leadership that just radically changed everything I was doing. So, we we're at a spot where we didn't want to move again. So, we, so I went back to school at 25. Okay. I wasn't really 25. Um, quite a bit <laughs> of than that. Good but, job. um, but, uh, I, w- I wanted to study how people talk about religion and politics, uh, how those things intersect, how they interact. And, and, So some of that was because of experience in pastoral ministry, there were good people, people who would claim that the Bible was their authority, wouldn't um, be receptive to certain things that the Bible clearly talks about. You know, so we do, we do a, a Bible study and I'd say, you know, hey, what'd you get out of this text? And it would be nine times out of 10, well, you know, we need, I need to pray more or I need to read my Bible more, or I need to talk to more people about Jesus, and like I'm all for those things, but that's not what the text says. Um so see so, you know, I had questions about what makes that what makes that happen? How do people view text through certain ways? And then um why do they reject certain things? So if uh we say the Bible's uh the authority, then it seems like we should take what the Bible says over uh say our our cable news source or our uh our talk radio shows that we listen to. Uh, But my experience is that that's really tough. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. I know a lot of pastors who, (laughs) they stay away from certain passages because they know the pushback they'll get. And so I wanted to understand that better. So I I research uh, those intersections of religion and and rhetoric and politics.
0: So that's interesting. You talk about how people would... Not see, just innately not see something that was in the text that you're, you're highlighting. That's right there, and I would look at that that reality. I've seen that reality a million times, but I usually just blame bias. I blame ideology, and you made that jump to rhetoric. Where's that? Where's that jump? I'm not seeing that, that connection.
3: Yeah, uh, great question. Well, I would say that uh, I think my understanding of rhetoric is those things all interact together. We, I mean, you've heard people say that we, we, we view the world through a certain lens. They may or may not use that analogy in a helpful way, but we, we don't come to a text, you know, clearly objective, um, as much as, you know, we would like to, as much as some, uh, perhaps some inductive Bible study, uh, methods claim that they can lead you to, but that is, I think a text is more rich and nuanced than that. And, and the human being engaging with that text is also uh, more complicated. Some people will take that, they'll, they hear those um, really ambitious truth claims of you can objectively know all these things. <laughs> I, had a, sorry, I had a pastor, uh, a pastor boss once who said that nuance was the enemy I was like, he
1: wasn't joking. I'm no. assuming I
3: mean, it's like, no, 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 no. I mean, you get fired um, if you lean into nuance and mystery. I'm like, we're dealing with human beings, and we're dealing with like the eternal. Um, so anyway, anyhow, um,
0: and people wonder why evangelicalism is becoming irrelevant.
3: It's yeah. I, I mean, that. it's and I think for so I think even even those claims there's philosophical ideologies that are behind that. So when people people make a claim that, oh, well, I'm just, the Bible says it, so I believe it and I'm going to do it. You know, it's kind of like when people say, I like a politician who just tells it like it is. Well, you know, what do you, be, it's, it's not that simple. And so some people hear that, that those kind of simplistic truth claims aren't true. And so they just go to the other end of the spectrum that, well, just, then we can't know any truth, and they kind of become like, yeah. you know, some kind of nihilist or, you know, some kind of radical uh, relativist. And I don't think that's the answer either. I think that uh, there's a lot of nuance and texture and flavor in text and in 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 truth and our understanding of truth. But but I think we can make some judgments about you know, validity and, um, and you know, what's a better reading of a text and what is a real stretch in a text.
1: So uh, you're kind of touching on this a little bit already, but let's make it a little more concrete if we can. Um, so what trends would you say that you've seen with how rhetoric works inside the church versus outside the church? Are there marked differences in how, how rhetoric works? Yeah,
3: certainly I would hope that some of the content, some of uh, the – The framework for understanding things is going to look different in a community that is shaped by a particular uh, faith tradition. That being said, I think big picture how rhetoric functions is very similar, whether it's inside a religious community or what we call a secular community. And and I don't mean that in a way that is meant to um, diminish religious rhetoric, or to make it less spiritual. Uh, I'd say quite the contrary. For me, it would be more of pointing to the spirituality of all rhetoric, um, how we communicate and connect with one another. I don't think it's somehow more spiritual when we say religious words as opposed to what we consider Mm non-religious. And and some of that is, some of that's the way I understand rhetoric, and some of that is the way I, like where I'm at theologically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything's God's. Hmm. If it exists, it's it's it's. I mean, it, again, this is theological, but uh, it, for me, that it certainly matters. That's a part of my understanding of rhetoric. There's not the sacred secular divide that you know. It's a, that's a fairly modern sure. European construct, sacred and secular. So, I um, that's one of the things that I do it, in my work is I push back for some of that divide.
1: Mm-hmm. So, tell me. Tell me this then, if it, if it's uh, if there's that much commonality between them and the sacred secular divide is something you want to push against, then maybe you can explain this phenomenon that I've noticed. Why why is <laughs> yep. it? And correct me if if you've not noticed this, or if if you have better evidence. It seems to me though that conservative American Christians, particularly evangelical ones, but conservative ones in general, have a really hard time being understood and a very hard time being compelling outside of their own spheres, despite their best efforts. So a great example of this would be evangelical cinema, right? So you have film franchises like God's Not Dead Parts 1, <laughs> 2, and 8 or whatever. And yeah. they're they're just punchlines. I literally watched that video and live tweeted it for all of my liberal Christian friends. Uh, I hate watched it. <laughs> Okay, um, and it was fun. It was great fun, but it was clearly not the intention of the producers of that film to be great fun for a bunch of atheists and liberal Christians. So why is it that they have such a hard time being so, taken seriously
3: outside of their own yeah. context? So I think there's a couple different things. A uh, rhetoric is kind of built together with a community of people, but also um, the other things we bring in, as well as like the tradition that comes that we're coming out of. Or I, should, I shouldn't say the tradition, the traditions. Um, so it's not purely a religious thing. It's not purely coming straight from the Bible, because that's not really a thing, right? I mean, there's, we're, we're complex, and it, I'd say it, it all belongs to God. Maybe not in the way the Bible is the word of God, but um, you know, we're all impacted by culture. So even the idea to have a movie, certainly that's a cultural thing. But we're, we're shaped by our, uh, by our logics, the, the way we understand the world and so a religious community like any community elements of the way they understand the world is going to be unique to them so so if you go to a new church that's maybe from a different uh tradition than yours people will talk and every once in a while they hear this what are they talking about at my state university i don't have people say hey what's your burden <laughs> you know what's the burden that i can that i can bear for you my brother i are like, wow, BBB, um, you know, and that's a s- sweet thing, and I'm not making light of it, but but that's just there's a unique. <laughs> yes, you are. It's okay. <laughs> no, but it's it's a way of talking, and when people hear that, they're like, I don't get what you're talking about. That's so foreign. So we form our own ways of talking in our groups, and you can see this in different um, in some activist communities. Uh, they they're so enmeshed with what they're doing that they develop their own ways of talking, and it's kind of insider mm-hmm. talked. That that's part of the issue. There's insider talk uh, for this conservative uh, religious community, which isn't just their local church. I mean, there is probably even larger influence of for-profit, or I guess maybe sometimes it's nonprofit, but they make a big profit. Christian media mm-hmm. that you know they have just like just like any media, they have their their playlists and their songs and the speakers that come on, and the, there's the bookstores. So it may not even, their ideology may not even really reflect the religious tradition of the church they're mm-hmm. from. It's more of this, Hey, here is McMainstream or Mick conservative evangelical culture. And if you're not a part of that, you don't know the insider talk. So then my other, my other part of the answer. So that's maybe my, um, Hey, we all have those problems. Um, I think what makes it particularly difficult for many conservative evangelicals and certainly for fundamentalists is part of their ideology that they understand the world through is this culture war narrative. And even more, so it's, it's us versus them. And so a conversation isn't particularly a conversation to connect with another human being, which I think if we step back and think about that theologically communication is connecting with a human being is this sacred thing but if you view it through, through a culture war standpoint it's it's a battle and it's me versus them and i'm going in more recently as as uh, it's gone beyond culture war to like victimization mentality it's you know i'm going to defend myself from these bad people who are attacking me and take away the things that are sacred to me Uh, Then then for some others, like a less angsty version of that is my main purpose here is to change the entire way they think about the world. And again, I'm all for people thinking about the world in a more Jesus-like way, but I think that approaching a conversation with another human being, trying to sell them something, like that being the primary goal, not to connect with them as another human being created in the image of God... I think that changed the dynamic of of the uh, of the relationship.
2: Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Story Hill BKC for their support. Story Hill BKC is a full menu restaurant and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Storyhill BKC is a full-service liquor store featuring growlers of tap, available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit storyhillbkc.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, you'll thank yourself for visiting Storyhill BKC. And if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's storyhillbkc.com.
0: So speaking of insider lingo, Jim, you made me think as you were talking about how groups on the extremes in particular, fundamentalists of of sorts, maybe you could say, have these words that they say that mean something to them, yeah. and then all of a sudden it, a switch happens, and it becomes almost like a, a, a dog whistle for the other side, where if you hear a word or a phrase, you know you should be suspicious about this person. So yes. conservative Christians have that, where you talk about the authority of the word of God, or original sin, or even talk about human sexuality in certain ways, the marriage being between one man and a a man and a woman, and instantly the other crowd tunes them out, right? Or on the other side, you have words like stay woke or words like white privilege phrases, Um, where Mm -hmm. if then a person on the other side hears that instantly, I can be in conversation, use that word white privilege or that phrase white privilege, and somebody on the other side will instantly be suspicious of me. It tells me, are those buzzwords, are they useful actually, or do we need to figure out a way to create rhetorically new ways of engaging so that we don't trip each other's triggers all the time, or is that just impossible?
3: Yeah, great question. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's impossible. I think some of what needs to happen is reassessing what is our goal in this communication act. Mm. If it's to stake out my ground for the fight, then I don't think that heart is going to or that, you know, kind of that logic of the world is going to, is going to want to change the way they talk. Because for them, that way they talk is more than just the word. It's the thing behind the word. And the thing behind the thing behind the thing is really their identity.
0: So could it be that in our politically charged world that we find ourselves in, if pastors, when they're preaching, were a little bit more thoughtful about the words they're using, or if we, as we're in dialogue, and I know that one, my sister— is a conservative Republican. And I know that my uncle sitting over on the other side of the table at Thanksgiving is a blue-collar, diehard Democrat. And I'm somewhere in in that spectrum. Could it be that in order for us to have a actually constructive conversation over Thanksgiving without regurgitating our meals, we actually need to think about the words and the phrases that we use? And possibly a more loving way of, of acting would be, a more Christ-like way of acting would be, to just set aside words that are just really familiar and normal for me, so that I don't trigger that, or is that kind of just is living in a way like that just kind of false, fake? What are your thoughts on that?
3: I mean, I have tons of people like this, right? Good friends and and family who are in very different spots uh, politically, and, and even and even uh, th- even theologically. Yeah, you know, some of it is knowing when to have the conversation. Another um, helpful thing that I found is. You know, for all the for all the values talk and how kind of one side has tried to claim that they're the values people. The reality is, we all have values. Uh, we all, you know, every year it drives me crazy when there's the values voter summit, and I'm like, no, man, we all vote our values. Now we may not be honest about our values, but we all we all we all vote them. We all act on them. We share most values, maybe not all, but we we share most values. Now we might define them differently again cuz terms are i mean there's some ambiguity in terms i don't think they're no i think terms have meaning they're not meaningless but there's ambiguity in exactly what they mean so like freedom it can mean like we all would say we value freedom but it means something a little different to different people and there's value hierarchies so so in in the uh in the arguments about uh the the safer home orders you know it's not like it's not like the people who think we need to have a strict federal guideline or state guideline even about um, state safer at home orders and what we should, you know, putting restrictions on us. It's not that those people don't value freedom. They, they value freedom. It's just that in this particular instance, public health. You know, they because of the public health risk that trumps the. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, pun, pun um, <laughs> intended. That the that trumps, the, uh, that trumps um, the freedom for them at the time, and at the same time, it's not like people who are you know out saying freedom, freedom. It's not like I mean the vast majority of them, you know that they would not you know they they stop at red lights <laughs> right. I mean they they're willing to have some of their freedoms infringed upon for safety. We have the same values. Uh, we may define them differently. And we clearly, we we have them at different um, points in the hierarchy. But uh, we can, you know, that, that gives us some hope. Like we can find some common ground. And I say that being helpful, I don't mean as like a money-back guarantee mm-hmm. thing, right? I mean, and not it's like, tough, a, particularly not like a method days.
1: for winning either, helpful in the sense of building a space for oh, communication. Oh, man.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: When you look at Jesus, the person of Jesus... Tell me about the rhetoric that um, you find out of the person of Jesus in the Gospels
3: so one another one of the things one of my uh, philosophies of rhetoric comes comes straight from Jesus like out of out of the heart come a, come a person's words and w- mm-hmm. so when I talked when I talk about like we all communicate we all see the word through a lens or we we understand the world and we speak through a particular logical framework or narrative framework, that's how we understand things. That's, that's another way of saying what Jesus said there, um, mm-hmm. that our words, our words aren't just accidents. So, so one of the rules in my house years ago, when I first started studying rhetoric was I didn't let my kids say, well, I'm just saying, he's like, Oh no, 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 no. You're <laughs> not just saying uh, because your words come from someplace and your words have an impact. They're not neutral, so even if I reject a person's words, I'm still interacting with those words. I'm still engaging with those words. So I think Jesus has all kinds of wisdom uh, in that in that one statement. You know, some of the the text where he, you know, if he was, if he was a contemporary uh, social science communication scholar, he'd say, "Here's how you clearly communicate your message." And sometimes, like Jesus, is not trying to clearly communicate his message. Uh, it seems like he's stirring the yeah. waters up and really making people think and not making it easy to understand what he's saying. I, that stuff, that fascinates me.
0: I was listening to another podcast a day or two ago where a myth writer was being interviewed. And myth is a scary word to a lot of Christians, to, to the idea that there, some of these ancient Bible stories could be myth. Um, mythical is very, very scary to a large amount of yeah. people. But this myth, this modern myth writer in the UK w- said the reason that he ri- wrote about certain experiences through mythology is because there are some experiences that are so deep and rich, the facts actually don't tell the story. And so he, result- he resorts to myth and not resorts. It actually is the best choice of communication. And so that's fascinating to me that God, this unknowable God, he comes to us and the rhetoric he uses is myth. Actually, that's his choice way of explaining this kingdom that he's trying to get us to understand. That says something, right?
3: Oh, man, that is, uh, yeah, that's that's profound. But in, in certain traditions, you say that, well, oh, this is the myth or this is the story about, as opposed to arguing that this factually happened this exact way. And I'm not saying like a myth, may have happened, you know, that story may have happened that exact way, but that's not the thing to fight about. The thing to fight about is inside me that I would be transformed by the truths mm. there,
0: mm-hmm. not
3: to try to give evidence that demands a verdict.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Jim, we've spoken a lot about rhetoric and the, the state of rhetoric in our culture. And to me, there's not a whole lot that's more broken in our culture than the state of than our rhetorical state. Yeah. I don't know if I'm speaking rhetorically correctly. <laughs> no, I, um, I agree but with that.
3: Our, our public discourse, our, our public rhetoric is, I mean, we're in trouble.
0: It's a mess. Yeah. So, so that being the reality that we find ourselves in, can rhetoric help save us? What, in what ways can rhetoric help us dig out of the hole we found ourselves in?
3: I'd really encourage people to really listen to their own words. What are you tweeting about? What are you posting on Facebook about? What are you Mm -hmm. talking to your friends about and and your your family about? What are the words coming out of your mouth? Because like Jesus said, out of your heart flow the words of your mouth. And so one of the ways that I look at it from a rhetorical standpoint is like, what is the story that's driving my words? My words Mm -hmm. aren't accidents. Mm -hmm. They come from a certain story. And That's so good one of the real challenges is <laughs> how does this line up with how I understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and I don't mean do I throw Jesus in there every once in a while or do I throw some Christian cliche words like is is the motion of the story does it line up with the motion of Jesus' story
0: Wow, can you imagine the difference on social media in our world, especially in the church if We just ask the question, is the story that I'm telling with my Twitter account, with my Facebook page, is the story that I'm telling mirrored at all by the story that Jesus told? Well, Dr. Jim Vining, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Jim.
2: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can find us on social media, like and share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're inclined to leave a review, we read through all of those and we love the feedback. Till next time, this has been a pastor and a philosopher walk into a bar.